that room's going to be pretty full today. Uh, I was told they will do their very best to social distance, um, but um, yeah, that's what happens when we're here. So, all right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn two places, uh, Exodus chapter 34 uh, and then Malachi chapter 2. Um, if you're looking for which one you'll hit first, we're going to talk about Exodus 34 first, which will actually be the first place you go in your Bible if you start left to right. So, um, but, but here's where we've been. We've been spending uh, the, uh, the last few weeks in the book of Malachi uh, as God is confronting the wayward worship of his children, which is the nation of, of Israel. And, and by doing this, we also become very exposed in our, in our own waywardness at times. And, and as we've been saying, uh, understanding God's heart and his correction is is so very important for how we are motivated towards any, any part of, of repentance. And, and I think too often we read the Bible uh, and we get this idea that there are two different kinds of gods, that you have the God of the Old Testament who is kind of this um, curmudgeon who is mean and who is wrathful and he's, he's yelling at kids to get off of his lawn and then... Uh, all of a sudden, when you get into this New Testament, you have a, a different God who is just kind of like, the, like a hippie God of, you know, he sends Jesus and he's just all love all the time and, and he doesn't really care much about holiness. And now, the, the problem with that is we fail to realize that he's really neither of these two descriptions. Uh, that, that God's pursuit is to display his glory while showing us who he is and and I think how we respond to his pursuit is to be uh, really taken seriously. And, and he presses this issue in Malachi, uh, and, and, and it's not so much out of wrath as it is out of love. Uh, in fact, if, if you'll remember, we start this book with uh, God telling his people, Hey, I have loved you. And then the people look at him and are like, Well, but How? I mean, I hear that, but, but how do you love me? And, and so, so he approaches us as this loving father who would be negligent uh, if he allows his sons and his daughters to continue in sin and not to address it in them. And, and so, so he says, I have loved you, but how you are responding to my love is not a proper reflection of how incredible I am in your life. And... And, and so, and then, you know, he says, how do, how do I know this? Because that's what we ask, they ask, right? Uh, that's what we ask. God says, I love you. And you're like, well, how? And he says, I, I know this because you are not, you're giving me the leftover worship that comes out of your life. Uh, that, and we're, we're calling this pseudo worship, that it's, it looks like it's almost your best, but it's, it's really not at all. Uh, yes, there is religious activity. There's even burnt offerings, but, it, but it's not coming out of our first, and it's definitely not coming out of our, our best. And, and what God says very lovingly is this is an issue. This is an issue with your life. And so, so as the conversation builds, we are forced to deal with this overarching question that, that God's asking as he just kind of collectively but individually pulls us aside and he says, okay, let's strip it away. It's just you and it's just me. There's no one else to impress. There's, there's no one that's going to really know other than you and me. So let's, let's be honest. Are you responding to my love 
with your very best? Is, is the offering of your life and your time and your finances and your opportunities and your dreams, is this your very best or is what you are offering an attempt to look like you're offering purely, but it's really coming out of the leftovers? It's a sobering question, isn't it? Uh, it's a hard one. And so what we, what we find today is, is God's going to be very helpful, and He's going to remind His people, uh, both then and now, of, of two great desires and, and then one demand. I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to get through this, but I'm doubtful we'll get through all three. Um, but, but what's going to happen when we get to this demand is we're going we're gonna <laughs> to be allowed into, in hindsight, uh, about the role of Jesus. And we're going to get to see what he does with our hearts. And, and now I think uh, this is going to be seen in, in three parts, and it's largely just God revealing an issue in our hearts and how uh, this is affecting our steps in response to his greatness. And so where this is going to lead us, we'll, we'll need to keep uh, this, this beautiful word, biblical word, context, right, in mind, um, because there's a verse that, that I think we're going to get to, we might not, uh, but it's, it's largely misunderstood. And it's largely misrepresented in the church. And, and this is a big part of why we, why we want to keep context and key and why it's so important. And, and, and though this verse is probably the most recognized in, in all of the book of Malachi, uh, it's not the only verse. Uh, but the church at times, and people like me, uh, will want to treat it as if it's the only thing that Malachi says. And, and, and now granted, if, if we wanted to treat the book of Malachi, and actually if you wanted to treat any verse in the Bible uh, this way without context, uh, you're welcome to do so. And, and here's typically what happens when we try. Uh, we will, we're able to find a God that's small enough to fit in our pocket so that we can pull them out when we need them. Uh, but the only problem is it's not the God of the Bible. Uh, and so, hey, Noah, um, it, his, her parents right there. Uh, and so, 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 so what I want us to see in, in these three parts, and really uh, each part's going to kind of lead us into the other part, uh, which will perfectly help us understand something important about um, how the initial argument isn't the argument. Okay, have you ever, have you ever found yourself in a conflict with someone and you're arguing about something but really the argument is about something else that you haven't gotten to the bottom of yet uh, and this is this is what's going to come to the surface uh, in fact uh, God will bring up uh, an argument and really we're going to talk about symptoms and diagnosis of, of worship dysfunctions because God is going to bring up an argument from the people against himself as an excuse for why they're treating him this way like, in fact, God's going to bring this, and I love the, again, I love the model of Malachi, because he brings up this argument, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem, and, and, and he's going to do this in a way of saying, hey, this is why you think you're treating me this way. In fact, the argument's going to be um, this attempt to kind of turn the tables and, and accuse God of doing something they believe he should be doing quicker, but he's not doing at all. And, and, and now, uh, they're going to bring up this issue of God's justice. Uh, what, and what God's going to expose is how their justice excuse was leading towards a worship excuse, which was causing this very, very real and very damaging uh, relational issue. Okay? But, but before we get there, I want to put a pin on that. 
and I want us to go to Exodus 34, okay? Because it is so important that we would understand this so that when we arrive at that, it'll make more sense, okay? So, so Exodus 33 uh, is, is covering this conversation that Moses and God are having, and Moses asks him a very specific question, and it's bold. He says, God, I, I want to see your glory, and God says, you can't see my glory and live. It's, it's, I am that magnificent. That to see me, to behold my glory would just end you. And so, but, but how God responds to this request is, is interesting because, because the request is for glory. And what God gives them is a response of saying, I will show you my goodness. And, and I think there's, there's probably um, something to explore there uh, where... where where God responds to requests for glory and he talks about goodness. And so he tells Moses what he'll do is he'll, he'll put him in the cleft of this rock, basically a small hole in the mountain, and he'll cover his eyes and then the train uh, of God will pass by him and, and Moses will see him. And what happens is God sees that and he radiates. Like to the point where when he comes down the mountain, he's glowing and it's freaking all the Israelites out. And so, so he comes in and as the Lord passes by, he says some things about himself. He describes. Now, now we can get together and we can, we can try to list ten things of, of who God is or, or what God is like. But what we have in Exodus 34 is this incredible gift. Because God defines himself. Okay? And now pay attention. Some of you have already started looking ahead. Stop looking ahead, okay? We'll read it together, cheaters. All right? Yeah, you know who I'm talking to. All right? So verse 5 in chapter 34 says this. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, being Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, okay? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, okay? A God, and you can underline these two things. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Okay, this is so important. No means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So, so when we speak of God's glory, we're speaking of, of who God is and what he is like according to how we've experienced him, right? But what we have here is, is God describing his distinctive radiance. And he's describing what makes God, God. When, and when God himself sets the terms on what his glory is, it surprises us into wonder. Because our, our deepest instincts would expect him to be thundering and, and gavel swinging and, and judgment relishing. And, and we, expect, we expect as we walk through the Old Testament to see a God whose heart would be about retribution toward our waywardness. And, and then what happens is Exodus 34 comes along and it just kind of taps us right on the shoulder and it stops us in our tracks. And it says that his bent is his heart of mercy. God is merciful. In fact, his glory is his goodness. 
Which again, it's so interesting, right? Because Moses says, I want to know your glory. And he says, I want you to see my goodness. And so often, maybe that's our prayers. We say, God, I want you to move mightily. And he says, I want you to see who I am. I want you to understand who you are because of how I, how I treat you. In fact, uh, Psalm 138, verses 5 and 6, Great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. So merciful and gracious. I love this, because He says, The Lord, the Lord, and He's going to describe Himself, and He can do any, He can use any words. And He says, I want you to know right out of the gate, I'm merciful and I'm gracious to you. The only two words that we see Jesus use to describe his heart is gentle and lowly. We find that in Matthew chapter 11. And so, so when asked to reveal his glory, God does not do it as the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. Or the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking. Or the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. Have you ever felt that's the way God looks at you? Now I'm just telling you, when we read the Bible and we do this thing called apply it, I know, Crazy thought. It says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. At his highest priority, his deepest delight, his first reaction, his heart is the Lord, the Lord, the God, a God merciful and gracious. Okay, so now why do I belabor that point? Because, because when we get to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, don't look ahead, we'll get there. We can rejoice in the fact that God hasn't changed his mind. That God doesn't change his mind from Exodus 34 to Malachi 3, and he doesn't change from Malachi 3 to this very moment in this very pocket of time that we're in right now. So, so, so his character and his glory are wrapped in his goodness, which expresses itself as a loving father who is merciful and gracious to us, even in the midst of our waywardness. Now, here's what you need to know. This doesn't excuse our waywardness. This doesn't give us an opportunity to say, well, if God's going to be merciful and he's going to be gracious, then I should just live in sin and do whatever I want to do. Because in so doing, what, the argument that Paul will make in Romans is that when you do that, it's like you ignore the first part. That because God is merciful, because God is gracious, we don't want to pursue a life of sin because we know that in our waywardness, it's taken us away from the many blessings of God. And so, so let's, let's talk about two desires, one demand. Uh, and this, this kind of comes on the hills of where we were uh, last week in chapter 2. And if you didn't get a chance uh, to watch that clip from uh, our, our online only, uh, you need to do it. Because what is said in chapter 2 is so very important. Um, but, but ultimately what we find is that the priests uh, in their waywardness has aided in the people's waywardness to the point where they were breaking covenant with God. But at the same time, I don't know, I'm sure we've never done this, right? We've broken covenant, and, but we still expect God to do all the things that God promises to do because of our covenant. So they're expecting him to do these things, and God says, no, you've broken this covenant. And verse 16 kind of ends with this instruction to guard ourselves in our spirits and do not be faithless. Okay? And so, so faith is going to continue into verse 17. Now let me just give you the, the bullet point here that, that God desires faith from his people. Okay, this is what verse 17 is going to tell us. That God desires faith 
from his people. So, so verse 17 comes out and it says this, you, okay, so you, me, them, have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Okay, so, so, so this is going to fletch itself out in the following verses, but, but the stage is kind of set with this argument that, that the conversation is one that's frequently on the hearts and the minds of believers. And, and we might not say, where is the God of justice? We, we tend to want to put it like this. Um, why does God let good things happen to bad people? Oh, and now we're found, right? Or, or more personally, why does God allow bad things happen to me being a good person? All right, let's forget the fact that we are, apart from Christ, horrible, horrible people. And so, so their words are, are cynical and they're skeptical. And, they, and the argument gets built out that, that we came back to this land, God. Now remember, they were, they were just coming out. They're decades removed from uh, their Babylonian captivity. So they say, we've come back to this land. We've rebuilt the temple. We've restored the worship. And, and, and look at all the difficulties we're experiencing. Why isn't God keeping his promise? Where are all the blessings that he promised through those prophets. And, and it was this age-old question, why do the righteous suffer while it seems that the wicked prosper? And that there are basically two roads that, that kind of lead us to, to the same def- destination here. Uh, we, we could argue, okay, very rightfully so, we could argue that because the Israelites have broken covenant, uh, they've defiled sacrifices, they've been... Uh, robbing God, they, they've been marrying pagan women, they've, they've, uh, they, they've withheld, they've not held up their end of the covenant uh, for, for God to bless them or for God to bless us in our waywardness, in our unconfessed and unrepentant sinfulness. It, w- it would be a lot like a parent buying ice cream for their kids who intentionally just set fire to the house. Right? Like, there's not a parent in this room, if your child says, hey, I'm going to set this house on fire, and you say, don't do it, and they say, I'm going to do it, don't do it, and, they, and you're like, you know, let's go get you some ice cream. And this is the argument that's being built out. God, I, I haven't given you my heart, I haven't responded to you with my very best, but I expect you to treat me as if I have. Then I think the other road that we could argue is what will be expressly revealed in the opening verses of chapter 3, that the people are wondering where the God of justice is, and they're expecting justice to happen really before the offense even occurred. And so, so since God is desiring faith from his people, then we need to remember that faith is developed over time. You get that, right? That, that faith is developed through seasons. And so, so God moves in our direction because that's his promise to us. Okay? Now, now, but he always moves at a speed according to his will. He always moves at a speed according to his purpose. And what God is going to ultimately say is, is you're complaining about the God of justice and your view and your perspective is so narrow and it's so instantaneous that you can't see 
that I'm doing bigger things than taking care of your complaints. So, so, and I think this is, this is one of our issues anytime we want to lean into religion and not relationship with God. That, that our attention will always look at the actions of others in this game of, of comparison. And if God decides to bless or simply allow something to happen uh, that we believe is a good thing to someone we've deemed, again, we're horrible judges of other people. I'm just telling you. But that we've deemed as less than good, then we're going to be tempted to cross our arms like a little kid and say, that's not not fair have you, ever, have you ever brought that complaint to god it's not fair and what we're going to see here is, is this argument was affecting them and it's affecting us and uh and when it comes to how we respond to god with our very best uh it when we don't do that it actually leads us to this attempt to rob god and, but before we go, though, I want you to hear what, what God says next, uh, because justice is always part of God's character. That there's not a moment, there's not a fraction of a moment that God cannot be just. He has to be. Because if God is unjust in for even a nanosecond, everything in our lives fall apart. So he comes in, and, and when we talk about God's character alongside the mercy and the grace that we desperately need. So let's go, let's go, uh, verse 3. Behold. Okay, when you get to that kind of a word in your Bible, it's a big one. Because it's saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say next. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now again, let's go to context. This is written about 400 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. Okay, so after Malachi speaks, God will be largely silent. And I think he's given us all a good time out. He said, I want you to understand your worship dysfunction is not going to work. And so he says this, he says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like, okay, and I want you to underline if you like to underline your Bible. Uh, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then, okay, so we got behold, right? Now we have then, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. And now he's going to give us a list of things that, hey, just don't be these things because God doesn't like them. If you're like, I wonder if God likes this. No, he's going to tell you, not a fan of these things. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. He says, I, I'm not on board with any oppressors. And anybody who wants to have power over other people, I'm not on board with that. 
And then he says something in, in verse 6 that's so important for us this morning. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, hear this, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So here's, here's our bullet point. That God demands purity from his people because everyone will be judged. Everyone will be judged. And so, so there, there are three important inv- individuals here, right? That's mentioned. The first individual is I, being God the Father, who is in, initiating the arrival of the other two. He is sending the other two. The second individual is the messenger who prepares the way. And this is, as we, were, as we spent time in Luke just recently, this is John the Baptist. In fact, the New Testament quotes this very verse to identify John the Baptist as the one who prepares the way for Christ. If you're looking for places to go, you can go Matthew 11, you can go Mark 1, you can go Luke 7. Right, but, but you don't have to read too far in the New Testament that this is the kind of prophet from whom God would raise up in the last days. That, that we'll find out the messenger will be like Elijah. And so when we get to Luke chapter 1, it says that, that John the Baptist went therefore before Jesus in the spirit and the power of, of Elijah. So that's, that's two of three. Now the third individual uh, mentioned here is, is the Lord who comes to his temple. And there, there are three things that kind of point us to Jesus here. And it's going to be important the way we understand who, what he is like, as Malachi describes him. Because the first one, it says he is called the Lord. So, so it's a term that, that Malachi doesn't use for Elijah. And he doesn't use it for John. That, that this person is someone that is greater. That number two, it says that the temple belongs to him. And then number three, this person seems to be almost identical with the Father. Uh, not only because the temple is, is God's temple, but also because he seems to, to take the place of the word me in the first half of, of the verse. It says, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, so Elijah equaling John the Baptist, to prepare the way before me. Right? But then he switches without any difficulty, and instead of saying, And I will suddenly come to the temple, he says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And it looks as though me uh, being Jehovah is, is virtually interchangeable with the other person called the Lord who owns the temple of God. Okay, that's a lot of Bible dork stuff, but I think it's important for us to hear it. So, so our focus becomes on the work of, of Jesus. So let's, let's remember the context of what's happening here. The argument of the people is where is the God of justice to which God responds Justice you believe is delayed is actually good news for you because I am patient and I am long-suffering. In my judgment, the world, that, that, that I slow my judgment of the world because I am a God who is merciful and gracious. And, and all of the covenants in the Old Testament unite in pointing to the arrival and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. All of them. And so he fulfills all the demands of the covenant, and, and, but, but pay attention to his purpose when he comes. It says he will, he will first purify, and then secondly, he will judge. Okay? He will purify, and he will judge. That, that God tells us what Jesus will be like by drawing our attention to two means of removing 
impurities. And both are thorough and both are severe. Because we are purified through the cross of Jesus, which was thorough and severe. And so, so though it is exacting, it can be viewed as, as severe, but it's also very merciful. Uh, because what Jesus takes on for us is the mercy of God, uh, and how we experience the mercy of God. And I think we see this most clearly as we look at Jesus being like a refiner's fire. Okay, so, so verse 6 reminds us that, that for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. Okay, so, so Jesus could either come as a forest fire or a refiner fire, and the difference is important. Because one just burns up and consumes it all. And the other purifies so that you have something without any impurity. And so, in fact, a refiner's fire was, was this process of purifying gold and silver so that the, the product was as pure as possible. So, so as this product is melted down, the impurities would rise to the top. And so you have uh, what, what gets kind of pulled off. It's called the dross. Um, and so they would pull that away, and they would throw it out. And then as the, um, uh, what are we calling that? Uh, as the gold or the silver began to cool, it would be more pure, meaning it's more valuable. Uh, and so... So as, as gold and silver cool again, it would increase the value. And this is who God describes, how God describes the work of Jesus as he presses our need to pursue holiness. He demands purity from the offerings of our lives. And too frequently, we think that's too much to ask. And God says, that's, that's the problem. Says that, that moment where you say, that's too much to ask, God. He says, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand my mercy. You don't understand my grace. Because if you did, you would just give it all. So freely and so joyfully. So, but by itself, this, this doesn't really make sense. Because wh- what if God were changelessly bent on being a forest fire what if what if he was changeless in unrelenting wrath what sort of changelessness is it that guarantees that we're not consumed and it's 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 the covenant it's the covenant keeping changelessness of god according again just go back malachi chapter one god breaks in and he talks about the message of the covenant and and, and the, the reason jesus is a refiner's fire and not a forest fire is because god made a covenant and he says i've loved you and i've chosen you and he he confirms it and he seals it with his blood so his blood is called in in hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 it's the blood of the everlasting covenant everlasting doesn't run out and so, so again, the book of Malachi begins with this statement of this covenant that says, I, I have loved you, and says the Lord, but you say, how? And, and he says, it's not Esau, Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. And this is, this is what never changes. This is what never changes for us, guys. The free and the sovereign choice of God to save sinners never changes. He says, I have loved you says the Lord, and I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. 
So Jesus is this refiner's fire and not a forest fire. And, and we don't like the idea of that, right? We like the idea of the free gift of God as long as it doesn't cost us anything. And the problem with that, that's a half of a gospel. And a half of a gospel might not as well be any of gospel. What time is it? All right, so we're, I'm going to leave you hanging. Um, we'll, get to, we'll get to point three next week. All right, let's, let's start wrapping this up. So I, th- I think as, let's, as we circle the runway, right, let's, let's ask this, this question. Okay, if we're, we're going to end on Jesus being a refiner's fire, let's ask this question. How can we experience his fire as refining and not consuming? How do we do that? How, how are we not consumed by it? Because verse 5 makes it clear that when God comes, not everyone will be refined. Some, some will be consumed. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the, hiring, uh, the hireling and his wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so, so this is not the work of refinement. This is the final judgment of condemnation. And it says in the Bible that anyone who does not ask Jesus, have Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they suffer the wrath of God's condemnation. And again, hear me when I say that, because too often we say, well, that put, doesn't that make God mean? We're like, no. God is merciful, and He is gracious. And His patience for us is it's overwhelming. And it becomes even clearer when we get to chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day comes burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And so, so when the Lord comes, some are refined and some are consumed. And I know we don't like the idea of that at times, especially in our society, because we say, well, surely there should be multiple ways. But what we find is that no. We don't establish the rules of our lives. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't establish very many rules at all that we're in control of. That we're more willing to submit to the laws of our land than we are to the law of God. And that's a great problem. So, so some are refined, some are consumed, how can we be sure to experience the fire of God as refining and not consuming? And in short, the answer is Jesus. But l- let me tell you what the answer cannot be. The answer cannot be, notice, notice very clearly what the answer cannot be. The answer cannot be you get rid of your sin. You can't do it. Because if, if you got rid of your own sin, you would need no refining and refining is for sinners and so you can't answer the question how do i qualify to get refined by saying get rid of your sin because that's what refining does it starts to burn up and it starts to pull away and the bible uses so many different illustrations for that here we get refiner's fire these other parts we get that god prunes us 
And sometimes he cuts parts back so that we can grow further. And sometimes he cuts things off so that it could die away and never be attached to us again. And when it comes to sin, what we learn is that God cuts it off. But he says, he says, I don't just cut it off. I make retribution for it because it costs you something. And when it costs you something, I'm going to pay that through the glory and the life and the death and the resurrection, the ascension of my son, who is your great purifier. So, but, so how then does a sinner qualify to have his sin burned up? And if it takes the merciful fire of God to destroy the rebellion of sin, what can a man do to have that mercy? And the answer is really the whole Bible. Is that we would trust, and as we look at Malachi, we would just stay in this lane, that we would trust in the purifying mercies of God. That we would trust in the God of justice. Because again, that's the issue, right? Where's the justice? And God's like, you don't know how badly you need justice in me. Or to put it this way, Malachi will say again and again, fear God. And that, that, which, which means mainly fear to dishonor him with unbelief. Fear the irreverence of distrust. Fear the impulse to jump out of the refining fire of mercy and into this forest fire of judgment because you think the forest fire will be uh, cooler. That you would trust the goodness of God. That you would believe His ways are the ways to infinite joy. That you would not doubt His expertise as a refiner. And the way we experience the fire of Christ as refining and not consuming is to trust His promise to bring us through the fire to endless joy. We just spent, I don't know, 40 minutes to get to this very penetrating point that we would trust the refining work of Jesus and that would lead us to endless joy. Which isn't that, my friends, at the heart of our worship issues. Because we don't have any problem rejoicing and praising the things that bring us joy. And what God is just reminding us here in these words is you think those other things are bringing you joy. And when you don't see me properly, you don't know what joy is. So this trust is formed more and more when we hear the opening verses of Malachi. I've loved you and I've chosen you. And then this proclamation of Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord. Hear, hear how God describes himself to you. And you don't have to debate him. Right? You get that, right? You don't have to come in and say, I'm going to fact check you. Okay? We're going to make sure that you are being truthful to your word because he is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the God who holds your heart. And if you're in Jesus, this is the God who holds you 
consistently. I don't know how I thought we were going to get to that third point. There's no possible way. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Let me pray for us as we pray. Let me also make a couple things available. If you you find yourself in this space and, and saying, okay, I, I, I've never had Jesus refine my heart. We plead with you and we long for you to do that today. Maybe you say, I have, but then, you know, I've kind of been elsewhere. And we believe that the beauty of the gospel says that even in your waywardness, you can always come home. And we have some people who will be on this side of the room that, that they just, they, they long to pray with you. They long to walk with you. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your mercies and we thank you that you care for us so, so passionately. And we pray that we would see your goodness as merciful and gracious and we would see your steadfast love and because of that we would we would have less and less of a taste for other things in this world father we thank you that you hold us in jesus name amen